beautiful high-rise apartment. You were working as a hairstylist and you enjoyed your job and you got along with your coworkers very well. But one day, a man comes in begging to borrow your beautiful car. You don't know him and you say that he can borrow it only if you get to know him. But little do you know, this decision will seal your fate forever. Hello, my fellow divers, and welcome back to another episode of Crime Dive, where we take a deep dive into crime. I'm your host, Lexi. Thank you so much for listening and watching. If you're new, welcome to the water. We're so happy to have you. If you're returning, welcome back to the water. We missed you, and thank you for coming back to take another deep dive into crime with us. So today's case is actually a case that was requested through the link that you can find in my bio, or if you want me to cover a case, or if you want me to cover the case of a loved one, I have both of those specific forms in my bio. This case, unfortunately, doesn't have a lot of information regarding the victim. However, I felt like this case was really important to cover because there's a little bit of an element of almost like a hate crime. The victim is actually, as far as I know, homosexual. So I felt like it was really important to cover this case because it does play into the crime itself. Like I said, I wish I had more information on the victim. I wish I had more pictures and more videos. I have been researching for hours for those things, but hopefully I will be able to find them by the the time I finish recording and editing this video. Either way, this video is going out because I feel like the story itself is very important. So I want that to be more of the main focus if you're watching on YouTube. Today we're going to be talking about the brutal murder of David Dior. And this case actually takes place in the DMV where I've said in multiple episodes that I'm actually from and I'm talking about some places that I'm pretty familiar with which always feels a little bit eerie to me. But with that, let's get right into the case. Like I said, I don't have a whole lot of information on the victim, but what I do know is that he worked at a salon called Hairport off Georgia Avenue in Washington, DC. And he lived in a high rise apartment building called Lenox Park Apartments in Silver Spring. Now David was set to go to work at the salon as normal. And on the day of Saturday, April 29th, 1995, he had a client that morning and he was supposed to arrive between 9.30 and 10 o'clock. One of his coworkers and friends, Markeith Harris, he was set to arrive at the salon at around 12. And of course, when he he got there, he expected to see David there because David was supposed to be there for a couple hours before him, but David wasn't there. And Markeith was very, very confused. So he decides to call him to see where he's at, but David doesn't answer. Now Markeith figures this is a little odd, but he says, okay, you know, maybe he's just running late. Maybe he overslept. I'll call him back in about an hour if he's still not here and see what's going on. So an hour passes, Markeith calls him back. David still does not answer. So at this point, he knows that there's something going on and he just gets a little bit concerned. So Marquise decides to call one of David's sisters, Heather. And he says, hey, have you heard from David? You know, he hasn't shown up to work yet. And she's like, no, I haven't seen him. I haven't heard from him, but give me one moment and I'll call our other sister to see if she has. So Heather calls her and David's other sister, Denise. And Denise also hasn't heard from David, but she decides to go to his apartment building to check on him. So she goes up to the security and says, hey, have you seen David Dior anywhere? He lives in this building. And the security guard says, I haven't seen him today, but I did see him last night. And he was returning to his apartment around midnight with another man. Denise is like, okay, so he should be here then, right? So she asks security to call David's apartment, but David doesn't answer. So at that point, Denise decides to just go to the salon where she picks up Markeith and on the way back to David's, she picks up Heather and they return to David's apartment to look for him one more time. 
time because it's starting to look a little bit weird. Denise decides to go to security once more and she asks if he can check David's parking spots in the parking garage because he has two spots for both of his cars, a Jeep Cherokee and his cherished red BMW convertible. So the security guard goes to check David's parking spots and they're both empty. David's cars aren't there. He's not answering the phone. Is he there? Is he not? I mean, what's going on? And where are his cars? So at this point, Denise says, can I please just go up to the apartment and check on my brother? Security lets her up. But what was very alarming to her was the fact that his door was unlocked which was very odd. She knew that that wasn't right. And she was able to just walk right in because the door was unlocked. And it was there that she found the body of David Dior wrapped in two comforters lying on the floor. And he was dead. David was wearing nothing but a t-shirt and he appeared to have suffered a single gunshot wound to the back of the head. And there were no signs of a struggle, meaning that whoever did this either caught him off guard or he knew the person and had no idea what they were about to do. Denise immediately called police and they arrived at around 3 p.m. and they took stock of the scene and they also searched the apartment to see if there was something else there that could indicate what happened to David. And they found a tube of lubricant in the room, an empty condom wrapper on the nightstand, as well as a white powdery substance on David's hip. And it actually did end up testing positive for the substance that people call snow. They also found a spent shell casing underneath David's body. Police believe the key to finding David's killer was finding out where both of his cars were because David was not known to let anybody borrow his cars, especially his red BMW, but both of his cars were gone. Now, after a while, police did end up learning that his Jeep Cherokee was actually in the shop, but they had no idea where the red BMW was. David would never ever let anybody borrow his red car. Even family and friends, I mean, he just cherished it. It was his, he didn't let anybody borrow it. So somebody had to have stolen it, maybe after they took his life. So police decide to talk to people that may have seen David in the hours leading up to his death. So they decide to go back to the salon that he worked at, Hairport, because he was there the night before on Friday, April 28th. And they speak to his last client of the night, a woman named Karen Moore. And she says that, yeah, she was at the salon last night, David was doing her hair, but while she was waiting for it to dry, David was just around working with other clients. And it was then that a man walked into the salon and he actually went right up to David and got his beard trimmed. And this man was none other than 18 year old Brian now Karen said that she'd actually seen Brian there before because he came in a few weeks prior and Karen was a regular customer. Like I said, Brian walked in, he got in David's chair while Karen's hair was drying and David just trimmed up his beard a little bit. By the time David finished Karen's hair and she left the salon, she saw David and Brian leave the salon together and they were both driving away in David's red BMW and she saw them. Markeith Harris, David's friend who called his sisters when he was worried that something was going on, he saw Brian too that night a few hours earlier when he was working. And Brian was there, he seemed to be waiting for David, but eventually Markeith left and he didn't know what happened after that. So now we have two people that have seen Brian Poole at the salon and he left with David. It appeared as if he was the last person to see him alive. So police wanna figure out who this Brian guy is and what he may know about what happened to David. And they decide to speak to some of his friends and they spoke to a man named Ryan Powell. And we're gonna get into him a little bit later and why police spoke to him in the first place. But according to Ryan, he said that he was with Brian on the night of April 29th, which was hours after David had already been found dead. And he saw Brian 
riding around with his friend Leon in David's red convertible. But he didn't know it was David's convertible. He just saw his friend riding in this really nice car. So he goes up to them and he says, hey, where did you get this car? And according to Brian, he said that it was his people's car, meaning it belonged to a family member. Ryan was like, wow, like this looks cool. You know, I like this car. So they were all just vibing, hanging out in this car that isn't theirs. And Ryan gets in with them and they're just hanging out, riding around. But once they return to Brian's apartment, Ryan notices that Brian did not park in front of his own apartment building, even though there was a space for him to park. He parked in front of somebody else's, which Ryan immediately noticed as being kind of Later on that night, Brian ends up going to the club and he brings the car with him so he can get attention and get girls and all that. And then eventually he and Ryan both arrange to meet up with two women around 11 p.m. in Hillcrest Heights, Maryland, which is actually where my mom is from. So when I was reading this case, I'm like, I wonder how far she was from all of this that was going on. Pretty sure my mom still lived there at the time. I don't think she moved away from there until about 1996 before I was born. So it's pretty crazy that my mom could have been in the area at the time. But anyway, Ryan and Brian are meeting up with these two women at their house. But Ryan noticed that while they were on the way there, Brian was taking, I know it can be confusing the Brian and Ryan, just stick with me. Ryan noticed that Brian was driving on some very side streets and back roads. It was like he refused to take the main road. So Ryan asked him again, he said, wait, so where did you get this car? And Brian ended up changing his answer. And he said, oh, I'm actually buying it from this guy. But he didn't say this guy, he didn't say David's name. He used a homophobic slur that disgusts me to no end. It's one of the most ugliest words. And according to the police affidavit, Ryan used it a lot. And he says this to Ryan and he's like, yeah, I got the car from this guy. I'm planning on buying it, but I'm just, you know, test riding it for now. And at that point, Ryan really didn't believe him. He figured that Brian probably stole the car. His behavior was just a little bit funny. I mean, between not parking in front of his own apartment and then using back roads instead of main roads, he figured that he was trying to evade being seen because it's a bright red car and it's pretty hard to hide. Police decided to speak to the property manager at David's apartment building to find out if there was any record of David leaving the apartment complex. And according to the property manager, she said, well, there's a few ways to leave the parking garage and that's by either using the electronic card, being buzzed out by security, or paying in the little machine by the gate that allows you to leave. The key card that's used to get in and out of the garage actually electronically records every time someone leaves. And I think it either shows the person's name or their license so police want to find out when David left the parking garage because his cars are both gone. And they recorded that David was entering the parking garage the night before on Friday, April 28th at around 10.30 p.m. But it never showed him leaving again. So whoever took David's car didn't use the key card. They may have gotten out in another way by either getting buzzed out by security or paying in the little machine in order for the gate to open. Clearly, however, this person left was not a way for it to be recorded. So they didn't have a specific time. But it's pretty weird that David's car would leave and not use the key card. It was his, he paid for it, so why would he not have used it? 
probably because there was somebody else in the car. So at this point, police are starting to put two and two together that this person who was driving and seen in David's red BMW, Brian Poole, was most likely the person who killed him because why are you riding around in his car? The fact that he was driving it in the first place, saying that he was buying it when David's car wasn't even for sale, and he was the last person to be seen with David before he went missing. And this was pretty much all police needed to formally arrest him. And on the afternoon of April 30th, 1995, Brian Poole was arrested. And get this, he was arrested in David's car. Turns out when him and Ryan were leaving the home of the women that lived in Hillcrest Heights, they were just sitting in the car taking their grand old time that afternoon. They weren't really in a rush to leave. And they're just sitting in the car when police pull up and find both of them. So they were both actually arrested, but Ryan was found to have not been involved at all. He was just in the car I and mean, he didn't really know it was stolen. He didn't have a part in it being stolen. He just said that he started to suspect that it was given Ryan's behavior. But I don't know why you ride around in a stolen car with friend. If I found out my friend stole a car, I'm getting out. They're not about to get me for that. Mm -mm. Now, Brian was charged with first degree murder and the use of a handgun to commit a violent crime. But at the time he was arrested, he didn't know that he was being charged with David's murder. Police just told him that he was being charged with car theft. So they figured not revealing this information, they figured that Brian might reveal a little bit more to them if he didn't think that he was being charged with something as serious as murder. And it worked. Brian ended up speaking to police. And they asked him, what is your relation to David? How do you know him? And he said, well, we've known each other for about a month, not very long. I saw his car one day and I asked him if I could ride it. And David said, yeah, sure. We just have to get to know each other a little bit better before you can do that. Brian was like, okay, that's understandable. You know, fine. So they had been hanging out for a few weeks, getting to know each other just so Brian could drive David's car, which already sounds a little bit funny. I mean, that just sounds weird. But after a certain point, Brian started to get the vibe that David wanted to have a romantic relationship with him. As I said, as far as we know, David is homosexual. But according to Brian, he said that he was not and he wasn't interested in having a romantic relationship with David, even though David said that he wanted one with him. So they asked Brian what happened on the night of April 28th, the last night of David's life. And according to him, he said that he showed up to the salon waiting for David. David trimmed up his beard and they both left together in David's red BMW, as confirmed by David's last client of the night named Karen. And when they asked Brian where they went, he said, well, we went to the gas station, we got some cigarettes, we went back to David's apartment, we watched some TV, we just hung out. And he said that while he was there, he asked David one more time if he could ride his BMW. And according to Brian, David said, you can ride it if you have sex with me. To where Brian said, no, I'm not into that. I'm heterosexual. I don't want to have sex with you. Eventually, he said that David just kind of agreed after this. He was like, okay, fine. You can take my car. And he loaned it to him. But when police asked Brian, what were the terms of the loan? How long did he say you could have it? Did you have to pay him? How far were you able to take it? Brian couldn't give them a direct answer. He was almost like, I don't know. I mean, he just said I could have it. He couldn't recount specific details of what they spoke about, which police thought was pretty weird. And it made them think that Brian was probably making this up and that maybe David didn't loan him his car. Maybe he just stole it after killing him. 
Police decided to obtain a search warrant for Brian's apartment to see what they could find in there. And on May 1st, they did just that. And they ended up finding underneath Brian's couch, a business card with David's name and number on it. So this confirmed that they did in fact know each other at some point and had been around each other. But this was all they were able to find. And police knew that there had to have been more because there was just something very off about Brian and they were gonna figure out what it was. So they decided to speak to another one of his friends, 16 year old Leon. Now remember I said Leon was also seen in the car with Brian at some point and when they went to the club. Don't ask me how a 16 year old was at the club. I don't think they ever actually went inside. I think they just stayed in the parking lot where Brian showed off David's car as his own in the parking lot. And according to Leon, he asked Brian, whose car is this and where did you get this? He said, oh, I'm buying it from somebody. I'm buying it from this person where he once again used that homophobic slur, which I don't know why. Why can't you just say the guy's name or why can't you just say this guy, this man? Why do you have to use that? I don't understand. And Leon says that while he's in the car with Brian, he notices a wallet that does not belong to him. And he knows it doesn't because he sees none other than David's license and credit cards. So now we're able to put David's wallet in Brian's possession, according to a witness. Leon also tells police that Brian actually asked him to hold a firearm for him because he knew police would probably be looking for it. And it was actually a 25 caliber firearm. And after police tested the shell casing that was found under David's body, it was also a 25 caliber bullet. So now we have a firearm that matches a shell casing that was found underneath David. And this firearm was in Brian's possession. So now police were able to place a murder weapon and David's belongings directly in Brian's hand. So they obtained another search warrant to see if they can find these items in Brian's apartment. And on May 6th, they go back out there and search. And it was there in Brian's bedroom, hidden in a little box behind a stand-up mirror that they found all of David's belongings. They found his license, his credit card, they found his apartment key, and they found the key card used to leave the parking garage, even though according to the records of the apartment building, it wasn't even used. So this was pretty damning evidence to find in Brian's apartment because it was very clear that he got a hold of these items after he had most likely killed David. And the prosecution believed that they had enough to go directly to trial. The trial began on November 27th of that year, seven months after David was murdered. Both Leon and Ryan testified in court as well as David's sisters and his friend Markeith. And they retold their statements and accounts, as I've said earlier, that were very, very incriminating against Brian. Brian's former cellmate, Joseph Wright, also testified in court. Now he was currently awaiting sentencing on a second degree murder charge and police figured that they should speak to him to see what he knows and according to Joseph he said that Brian admitted to killing David and he said the way he did this was by tricking him into thinking that they were going to have sex. He said that he had David lie down on the bed face down and Brian was standing up behind him and he opened a condom wrapper and was crinkling it to make it sound like he was putting it on but at that moment he pulled out a firearm out of his waistband and he shot David in the back of the head. And this could possibly explain the empty condom wrapper. Now, I don't think they ever found a condom to see if they actually did end up having sexual intercourse, but they did find an empty condom wrapper that could possibly verify the story. Joseph then said that after this, Brian said that he stole David's license, his car keys, his wallet, his apartment keys, all of his credit cards, insurance documents, and he stole his car and left, which seems to line up with the evidence. 
Now in a shocking twist, Brian actually decided to testify on his own behalf in court, which I always say is very risky. And he admitted that he did lie to Leon and Ryan about buying David's car, but he said that everything else they said was a lie. Why would they both be lying? They're your friends. He also completely denied the testimony of his former cellmate, saying that he was lying too. Now he retold the story of saying how he wanted to drive David's car and they got to know each other beforehand. He retold the story that he told police in the interrogation room, but he also revealed some very new information. He revealed in court for the very first time that he let David perform oral sex on him on two separate occasions. And after the second encounter was when David let him borrow the car, according to him. Now, he did not admit this to police at all in the beginning, and when they asked him why not, he said that he was embarrassed and unsure of his sexuality. Now, when they questioned him about the night of the 28th, which was the last night of David's life, he said, yeah, you know, we went to the gas station, then we went back to his apartment. But last time he said that he went up there so they could watch TV. But this time he said he only went up there so he could use the bathroom. And when he got out of the bathroom, David was on the phone with somebody for about 15 to 20 minutes to where at that point, Brian interrupted him, got the car keys, and he said that he left. And then he left a number for David to page in order to pick him up from work the night after. So I'm just like, none of this makes any sense. His story changed so much after he found out he was being charged with murder. But before he found out he was being charged with murder, this is not at all what he revealed to police. So when police asked him, well, why didn't you go pick David up from work then? Probably because he knew he was already dead. But he was like, well, David didn't page me. So I figured that I didn't need to anymore. So I just went on about my day. But it's just all sounds very weird and very off. Like I said, David's family knew there was no way that he would just let this stranger borrow his car after only knowing him for a few weeks. Brian also denied ever stealing any of David's belongings, as well as his credit card, his license, his insurance documents, and his apartment key. Even though all of those things were found in his literal bedroom. So when police asked him, well, how can you explain those items being there? And he's just like, I don't know. And they're like, good answer. Great answer. And like I said, this is really why people should not go on the stand to defend themselves if they're literally guilty. Because you don't think they're gonna ask you about those things. I mean, what are you gonna say? And of course, on November 30th, 1995, after only four days of going to trial, Brian Poole was found guilty of first degree murder and the use of a firearm for a crime of violence. And on December 1st, Brian was sentenced to life in prison plus 20 years for the firearm charge. Of course, he tried to appeal his conviction saying that he got ineffective counsel that allowed certain testimonies in the court that should have been inadmissible. But in a 2014 hearing, 19 years after the original trial, it was denied. He didn't meet the requirements for this. He was kind of grasping for straws. And as far as I know, he's still in jail to this day. This case is really heartbreaking because David's life was taken pretty much over a car. And it seems as though his sexuality was kind of used against him or as a weapon in order to gain his trust just for his life to be taken. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm sure David was given the option between his life or the car. David probably would have been like, just take my car. So it's really sad that he wasn't given this option and his life was just taken over something material. His life mattered and it was important and for it to have been reduced to the desire of a material possession. It's just heartbreaking and it's not fair to David or his family. But with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap up today's episode. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you so much for listening and watching, and I hope to see you in the water soon.